There are so many aspects to the job yeah. that managing your time yes. um, and getting these things right is, um, yeah, but if I, I'm enjoying it. I mean, what I found during the leadership election was just every day that went past, I felt more confident about, yes, I've got the right ideas for changing the party, I've got the right identification of the big challenges facing the country, um, and, uh, and a very good team. And I'm very pleased with the Shadow Cabinet um, reshuffle. I think, um, you know, I've got some extremely good, experienced heads around me. Um, it was good to wake up this morning and hear William Hague on the radio, and I thought that's good. I don't know. Well, he was extremely. You know, I thought his interview was a lot better than Jack Straw's. Um, but he, you know, it's, it's good to have that. And David Davis is doing a great job as Shadow Home Secretary, and the inner team has sort of gelled very well, I think. So, what's, what's how things going? What surprised you about the job? I think um, just the pressures on your time, just the many, the, the huge barrage of invitations, requests, decisions have to be made, you know, it's just a huge barrage that arrives almost on day one. Um, but uh, I'd say I've had a good private office sort of ready and waiting to go. Um, Edward Llewellyn is my chief of staff, who's extremely experienced and people to deal with, you know, literally 900 emails arrived the next day. Um, but the office was manned and staffed and they've by and large been answered, I hope, if there are any angry emailers out there. Um, and we got off, I think, to a very good start in terms of, you know, three minutes after the leadership election, the central office website was turned over to a David Cameron uh, promotion and site, and we had a huge number of hits on that. We did a mail of a million letters to um, target voters and former conservative voters, and I think on the first day's return, we got 6,000 new members. Um, we've had thousands of members through the website. We handed out 330,000 newspapers on the day of the leadership election result. And um, by Christmas, I would have been to. I went to Northern Ireland yesterday, and I would have been to Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, as well as various other regional tours. I'm off to Hereford in a minute to make a big speech to win over Liberal Democrat voters. Well, I think the opportunity was always there because. What I want to do with the Conservative Party is make it a modern, compassionate Conservative Party, get into the mainstream of British politics, broaden the appeal of the party, talk about subjects we haven't talked about, change the face of the party with more women candidates and representatives from black and ethnic minority communities, and get into the cities. That's also been a <coughs> big theme of the leadership campaign, and it's going to be a big theme of my leadership. Um, you know, Having the Shadow Cabinet in Birmingham was not window dressing, it was an opportunity for every member of the Shadow Cabinet to go and meet with and listen to people in Birmingham, whether it was in the arts or sports or media or business or as I did, I went to visit a very good social enterprise that helps um, young black men get out of poverty and into training and into work. Um, that was in Birmingham. So we did the Shadow Cabinet in Birmingham. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. Those, you know, the, the changes I want to make are very, are very clear, and I think that will appeal to Liberal Democrat voters. They don't have to wait for, for you know, Charles Kennedy to raise his game. Um, there's, a, there's a very strong now, modern, compassionate, conservative alternative to a Labour government that many Liberal Democrat voters are frustrated with. I mean, since we're on the Liberal Democrats, but, I mean, most people who voted Liberal Democrat in the last election probably voting against the Iraq war, which you're in favour of. Are voting because they're pro-Europeans and um, you take a much more Eurosceptical view. Why on earth should they be coming? Well, let's take that's actually what the speech is about in a way. Is, is some of the things that divided 
um, Liberal Democrats from the Conservative Party, I think are no longer relevant. One of the big things for Liberal Democrat voters was a support of devolution and power to local government. We're now the biggest party in local government. We've changed our approach towards local government. We want to empower local councils, give them more uh, responsibility to spend their money as they choose. We've also accepted the devolution settlement in, in, in Scotland and Wales. So I think that that reason, that division has gone. And also on the Iraq war, yes, we took a different view, but actually we're now, I think, all pretty much in the same place, which is we want to hand power over to an Iraqi or elected Iraqi government, Iraqi police force, Iraqi army, and bring the British troops back home. So the, the reasons for Liberal Democrat voters not to vote Conservative, I think, are many less than um, the right. about bringing the British troops back well, I, you know, I think the timetable has got to be set by what is appropriate in terms of ensuring um, stability, democracy, uh, uh, um, and freedom for people in Iraq. I, I've never thought it's right to set a an arbitrary timetable that would give terrorists something to an insurgent something to shoot at. Uh, but I think the prospects for bringing British troops back um, are, are are good. Just talk a bit about your, your early days. <coughs> uh, were you shitting yourself before Prime Minister's question? Well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. No, I was, <laughs> I, I was sort of confident and optimistic outlook in life, and I believe, you know, you, you meet these challenges and just sort of go out and do it. And obviously it was a big... I, I have to admit, I enjoyed Tuesday, the result, a lot less than I would have done had there not been Prime Minister's <laughs> questions the next day, if I can put it that way. Um, but... Uh, it was, you know, once you're up there, it's fine. It's not so bad. I mean, the noise is unbelievable. I mean, it's you just—it's a pity television viewers don't hear it in a way because you literally cannot. I watched the first one afterwards, and uh, you know, it looked a bit odd almost when I said to the chief whip to stop shouting. But if you could have heard it where I was standing, you know, it was just unbelievable to be sort of. Yeah, she definitely quietened down, and and the deputy prime minister was quieter than usual. But the noise is incredible. But actually, it's a. It's a good opportunity to have a debate with the Prime Minister, to ask some questions, to put some points. I was very pleased both this week and last week that I think on the education reforms I got my message across, which is that where they're good, we'll back them, and he can be bold if he wants to, because he doesn't he can do it for the good of the country rather than just have to square the Labour Party, and I think that's a good um, it's a good You thing. you had this um pre cooked line, white paper or white flag. I mean the, the end of punch and duty politics didn't last all that long. Well, I know, I don't agree with that at all. The point about punch and duty politics is I'm not opposing for opposition's sake. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm saying to the Prime Minister, if you want these education reforms, you can have them. Be as bold as you like because you've got my backing. And that is the sort of constructive opposition that I'm gonna take part in. Because I think the truth is that you know, the parties have come closer together, and the British public knows this. They're almost ahead of the politicians, and the politicians have got to wake up and realise that people want us to work together where appropriate for the good of the country. And this is a good example, and that's certainly not Punch and Judy. Can I just explain what you mean by that? I mean, when you say that he can be as bold as he likes because he's got my backing and he's got my vote, the flip side of that, the implication of that is if he retreats to the pacifying party, if he makes concessions, if he waters down that bill, then, then your support has to change. Well, the judge, yes. The, the, <coughs> well, there is no bill. We're supporting. I mean, it's a fairly timid white paper, and it's a quite a muddled white paper. Read the first few pages, and you think this is school freedom, this is autonomy for schools, this is an agenda that's fantastic. Get further in, and it's watered down, and it was very much. You can feel that it was drafted by a committee, and a committee that didn't agree um, with itself. 
Um, but the judgment we'll have to make is, you know, if the bill is close to the white paper and gives schools freedom and will improve education, we'll back it. If he caves into the alternative white paper and wrecks it, we won't. But that's the judgment we'll make. But I think I've set out the parameters pretty clearly. But that's still because you the freedom to vote against the bill. Well, I don't want to. I don't go in. I not go into Parliament to go and vote against things. I went into Parliament to try and get the education system right and try and get the health system right, and that's what we want to do. So, where he does water down the bill, we'll be able to push amendments and say, no, this is what real school freedom is. And, and um, you know, so like since we're in the education area, we nail something down. Do yeah. you want more schools to have academic selection? No, I don't want to return to the 11 plus, and I want schools yeah. to have freedom over admissions. And the, the point behind that, and so does the government, by the way, if you read the white paper, it wants to give schools control over admissions. And the point of that is to allow them to plan and to look forward and to make sure that they know who's coming and when and to understand their budgets. And you find that demand from a lot of head teachers. Um, and so that's the point of it. And you know, if you look at what happened with grant-maintained schools that were given freedom over admissions, they didn't all suddenly become selective. Um, they just liked having control of their own destiny, and that's what it's about. And Labour are trying to raise this red herring about returning to academic selection. That's not on the agenda at all. I mean, you see, I've you never met a secondary head who wants to go selective. But you could have selection, where you don't <coughs> necessarily have to go back to the 11 plus, which I think you talked about educational apartheid in our previous yeah, 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 But you could still have more selection. I mean, <coughs> I, think, I mean, there's some people look at it and say it's absurd at the moment the government set up schools that can select on your sporting ability and, or and how on, good on, you're on, at IT, and, and but not languages. whether you're good, whether you're and, good at and, maths or and, English. And modern languages, and I think you know that that um, you know. So it's a question for them really. Is is uh, obviously if you have more trust and foundation schools that can select can can select on those aptitudes, there will be an extension of selection, but it's not a return to 11 plus, and it's not so a return to... selection on aptitude rather than selection Well, that's, that's right. We're looking at giving schools freedom. That doesn't mean they're going to go down an academic selection path, but it'll lead to a wider variety of schools. Would you mind if it ended up with more schools selecting by academic... Well, I don't want to see a return to the 11 plus. Yes, I did, but that wasn't quite the question. Would you mind if more schools... I think a wider variety of schools with a wider variety of specialisms, particularly in areas where you can exercise choice, is sensible. But I, I don't, you know, representing as I do, small towns with one or two schools, the last thing you want is for one to be a selective school and the other one not to be. Do you admire Tony Blair? I admire what he did to the Labour Party. I think that, you know, he, he took a party that believed in, <clears throat> you know, one-sided nuclear disarmament and one-sided trade union law and massive high taxation and nationalisation and he changed all of that and that was actually good for the country. It's much better for the country to have two major parties who basically believe in you know, liberal economics and democracy and a reasonable relationship with Europe and the Atlantic Alliance. That's good that we have more consensus. Um, but I think he's I don't admire his prime ministership. It seems to be a big wasted opportunity. I mean I, I always think one of the most remarkable things is that if the mission was about reforming public services, what on earth was he doing? You know, appointing Frank Dobson as Minister for Health and what was he doing centralising schools and abolishing grant-maintained schools? And and I think if you look across the sort of public service reform, it's just been a big... They didn't know what they wanted to do. They do, had, do you look at any of his record and say, actually, I do admire that? In a way, he used to say, <coughs> look, yeah. Margaret actually got something's wrong, but actually she got this They're right. What do you think he's got right? <coughs> There are definitely some things to build on. 
there's no doubt, and I've said that, and, and uh, you know, people don't want, I, I don't want a Conservative Party that wants to sort of turn the clock back to 1997. I want to say, right, what has been done that's good and we can build on? What needs to be changed? And the things that are good are independence for the Bank of England. I think that the, the monetary stability is very important. Now, put, being put at risk by a lot of fiscal irresponsibility, a lot of... Um, you know, borrowing and changing the cycle and undermining the fiscal rules. Um, so I think that was good. I think some of the education reforms, I think city academies are a very good uh, idea, leveraging business money into um, inner city areas where people haven't had good life chances. I think that is good. But there are many things that need to change. Minimum wage, was that good? I think the minimum wage has been a success, yes. Your party was utterly wrong about that when it predicted it would mean many millions well, of people being unemployed. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, it's turned out much better than, um, than many people expected, including the CBI and others. Um, there have always been, there are always different ways of dealing with the issue of low pay, and the Conservatives used family credits and other credits for the low pay, but I think the minimum wage has been a success. And new I think deal? you just learn from that. Do you think the New Deal's been a success? I, I, I'm much less convinced by the New Deal. Um, we do, had a long look at it before the last election, and there's a lot of evidence that it's provided a revolving door for young people rather than a real pathway into um, work. And I think this is one of the big differences I think that's going to emerge is I see a much greater role for social enterprises, private businesses, other organisations to run training programmes. You know, just in the last week um, when I was in Birmingham, I was talking to Pertemps who are a, 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 a business that runs training programs who are just much better than the state you know and I said to them well what more would you like to do that Job Centre Plus is doing now and they said you know how long have you got and the list came out of all the thi- all the freedoms they'd like to have all the programs they'd like to run the fact they'd like to have much longer term contracts rather than pilot schemes but they are the people who've got the passion and the energy and the drive who really understand how you take someone who's unemployed and got low self-esteem and low qualifications and actually help that person to turn their life around. And I saw the same thing actually yesterday in, in Northern Ireland, in, in the Shankill, which is probably one of the most depressed wards in the whole of the United Kingdom. And a staggering statistic that 16% of young people in the Shankill yes. have more than five, have five GCSEs or more, all the rest less. I mean... You know. And so, what I think there's a. Do you think the specific contribution? Do you think that enterprises, businesses like that, whether it's voluntary sector, corporate, can actually play? How much further can they? Absolutely, go a long way. I think. I think this is a really big agenda. I think if you look at all of the big problems and issues, particularly in in, in city areas, but not exclusive yeah. in city areas, of um, drug abuse, family breakdown, chaotic home environments, crime, poor public space. I would say that in every single one of those, you'll find voluntary bodies, social enterprises, doing the most innovative and incredible work. And <laughs> darling, much more important. If you take any one of those problems, you'll find social enterprises doing incredible things. And, and for instance, you know Dick Atkinson in Balsall Heath in, in Birmingham. His vision is almost to sort of take over the running of that part of the city. He's already got a warden scheme. Uh, they're transforming the parks and public spaces, um, and linking up all the voluntary bodies so that they can help the whole community. And, you know, he wants to do far more. And so I think that the, 
you know, I wouldn't be asking what is the limit on what these organisations can do. I'd be asking, you know, what more can they do? How can we help them? How can we replicate them across the country? Well, let's explore something. Because you, you know, one of your much-used quotes you like to use yeah. is that one about there is such thing as society. I just don't think it's a <coughs> state. Yeah. Now, were you consciously trying to repudiate Margaret Thatcher when you said that? I was just saying something that I feel profoundly to be true. I mean, I think it, it has a resonance because of the, uh, I think, the remark that Margaret Thatcher made that was so taken out of context because she said it's all about families and individuals. Exactly. And but yeah. I, I was turning it round to say there is such a thing as society. It's not the same as the state. It's all these other things as well. And so I think it, it encapsulates, to me, it encapsulates something that I believe as a compassionate conservative, yeah. that if you want to help make the country a better place, if you want to help turn communities around, ask what is it people can do for themselves and together through social enterprises as well as what the government can do to them. Because I read, if you read that, you're quite right, if you read the full Margaret Thatcher quote and she goes on to say what there are are families yes. community, what you're actually doing is saying what she was trying to say or what she did say. I, I, would, you, would you agree with that? You, you, you can be the linguistic philosopher and I'll just be the politician. What do you do in those areas <laughs> of the country where... Um, Actually, just the voluntary organisations don't exist or don't exist in the, the numbers or with the talent. Well, I Do think it. the state's yeah. still got to uh, be of there. Of course, of it? course. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, one of the things I've said repeatedly is you, you know, rolling back the state must never leave the poor, vulnerable, weak left behind. And that's where, you know, the state clearly has a role. But I think what you'll find in almost every area is that there, there are blossoming elements of civic society that could do much more. You know, even in. In the Shankill yesterday, what was interesting was saying, I sort of rather assumed, almost, and, and was wrong actually, I said, I, I suppose with all the troubles and with all the intercommunal violence that there aren't the voluntary bodies that, and social enterprises that will be able to help people because they've been part of the problem, as it were, thinking of the local organisations of Sinn Féin. And actually... A woman put her hand up at the back and said, no, the Shankill Women's Organisation is a fantastic organisation that really mirrors the work of SureStart and actually often gets to the really hard-to-reach young mums who see SureStart still as a bit of an agent of the state and don't want to let them through the door. So even in places like that, where you'd think the voluntary sector would be struggling, there are organisations that could do a lot more. So what practical terms Several things. One is um, trust. It means actually the government trusting them with contracts, with resources, and not always thinking that it's going to lead to corruption and, uh, and also not thinking that every failure means you've got to completely throw it out the window. It means that you've got to treat a failure as a learning experience. Longer-term contracts. Um, there are far too many pilot schemes, short-running schemes. I think that is very important. Uh, the famous level playing field, if you ask voluntary bodies and social enterprises what it's like bidding for government contracts, they will say it's just not fair, we have to cover all our overheads, we have to be transparent, the government organisation doesn't. Um, and so there are, there are sort of three or four steps that would actually make a difference. And one of the things I've talked about in addition to that is the idea of social action zones based on enterprise zones where, you know, in the 80s we said, if you're a business, go to that area, don't pay tax, don't pay rates. I think we could do the same. Um, with social enterprises in, in areas of, of high decoration. Rate rebates. Um, one argument, one, one I came up with is changing the rules on volunteers and benefit claims. That's something, if you ask the social enterprises, mm-hmm. one of the problem, what are the problems you face? They say, well, if we take someone off the dole, the give them some voluntary work to start with so they can get into the job, they then lose their benefit claim. Yeah. 
So looking at all the problems they have and just so asking, you, you know, what is it? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. We talk a bit about the, the Conservative so Party. Ian Duncan Smith is yeah. one of the things I, I, I suspect he did get right. He was said, you're defined as a leader in your first three months. Do you think that's that right? I don't know. Um, all I know is I'm not going to spend the first few months sitting around thinking what to do. Um, I know exactly what I want to do, and I think, you know, I hope you've seen so far, very early on, the issue of changing the, the, the face yeah. and the faces of the Conservative Party by a real push on women candidates. I think that is important. Um, the priority I give to the environment, quality of life and green issues with the Zach Goldsmith, John Gummer group, um, that is important. The priority to the area we've just been talking about in terms of social justice and problems in inner cities with um, the social justice policy group under Ian Duncan Smith, who I think has done actually huge work on this. And, and there will be many other things coming down the road. Just talk about women. Do you think it's still yeah. acceptable that our Conservative clubs, local association clubs, where it is still forbidden for women to go in the bar? Um, no, I, I think political clubs ought to be open to everyone if they're, if they're part of politics, rather like, you know, because that, that is, that, 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 you know, politics is a equal opportunity What thing. does that tell you about your party, though? The point about Conservative clubs, <coughs> I don't have one in my constituency, funnily enough, so I'm not as expert in this, but Conservative clubs are often really quite far removed from the local association. Um, you'll find many people who go to conservative clubs um, aren't actually uh, necessarily conservative voters. They, they're quite autonomous bodies. They're probably um, not Labour or Liberal. No, no, no. You'd be very surprised. Really? No, absolutely. Yeah. No, no. That's not true of the Carlton Club, which is yeah. you know, very close to Which is the conservative party, club. And yeah. which still, as far as I'm aware, doesn't yeah. allow women. William Hague said when he was leader that there's no point in me going around the country saying more women candidates should go no. forward. Well, the Carlton Club still doesn't let them in. Yeah. Ian Duncan Smith didn't join the Carlton yeah. Club. No, but I think, as I said, I'm not a member, no. I think that's right. I and think you won't become a member, as long as it I, I, doesn't allow women? Well, I want it to... I haven't thought about that yet, but I've, I've never been a member, and I've never um, applied to be a member. And I think political clubs should be completely um, open. So the Carlton Club? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, great. you're a member Sorry, of white, yeah. I am. I think that's... I mean, I've, I've been asked this loads of times. I mean, I think, you know clubs that have nothing to do with politics, I don't believe in, you know, every organisation has to, I mean, I, you know, I would always vote to allow women, but I'm a member because my father is, and we go and have lunch there, and it's not exactly an important Your, your father was chairman, I think. He was, was, he was. Um, Greg Dyke once said at the BBC that he thought it was hideously white. Do you think the Conservative Party is hideously white? Um, I think, uh, I wouldn't use those terms. Um, but, and I think actually the last election we had more... I'll be back. Um, I'll be back about upstate. Where are you going? Oh, lucky you. Will you get my Christmas? It's much easier being interviewed by the Observer. Sam Adler's got to do the Christmas shopping. Yeah. Much more, oh, more agonising. Give me my list. <laughs> Bye, Nance. Have you got the spider hat? Bye. Bye-bye. I know, no, that's the yeah, no, She's getting used to it. Um, sorry, where were we? Hideously white and all of that. Um, at the last election, we actually had more candidates from the ethnic minorities than any other um, party. Just not Jack, the seats they could win. Well, we didn't yeah. win very many seats, as you <laughs> might have noticed. And you know, we did at least have two um, 
uh, candidates from ethnic minorities who, who did win. But we need to do a lot better, and uh, that's part of the A-list strategy that I'm pursuing, which is to have you know a list of 140 candidates, half men, half women, a very good percentage of candidates from the ethnic minorities, and those will be put in front of associations, and they will need a very good excuse not to pick from them. And then I've also put the backstop in of three months after that to stop, to look again, and say, right, is that enough? Is that working? And if it isn't, then we'll take further steps. What would constitute, I mean, I'm determined to fix it. Okay. What would constitute a very good excuse? Uh, if there was a very strong local candidate, let's, let's say um, Barrow in Furness, to take an example at random, if there happened to be an incredibly strong local candidate who had been campaigning over the local hospital or who was well known for building the last Trident submarine or something, it was just you know a real sort of hero or heroine, uh, of the local community, that would be a, that would be a reasonable excuse, um, and, and I think also we'd obviously have to look sometimes in the regions where you, you may find a seat that says, well, there aren't enough people on the A list from this region, and so our choice is very limited. Then you might want to top up the A list, but again with equal numbers of men and women. Why do you think in the past your party or a lot of your party at a local level just won't select well, women, however talented, yeah. or people from the ethnic minority? Part of the problem has been the selection processes, and that's something also that I've fixed um, because and this is ironic in a way for me to say this, that, that, that the current processes give a lot of uh, advantage to the one big speech in front of the audience of 300 people at the end of the process and uh, I don't think that takes into account all of the strengths that a member of parliament has and so I've argued two things, one we can either have primaries, they can have a primary election open or closed with all you know, uh, registered voters voting for the candidate or and I really favour this because I think it's because it was my idea. Um, is, to have a, <laughs> is to have a community panel who would say so you've got your short list of say five or six candidates, and then they go in front of a panel which includes you know the head of the Citizens Advice Bureau, the local chief inspector of police, the local business leader, someone from the voluntary sector, maybe the chief nurse from the local hospital, and they interview them and say, what are you going to bring to West Oxfordshire or North Dorsetshire or whatever? Uh, what do you think the local issues are? How will you react with local people? How will you do? And all of that will actually get across to the people choosing and voting all the skills that local member of parliament is going to need. And I think in many cases you'll find that women will be better than men at those um, skills. And I think that will help. Um, so I think that's been one of the, one of the bars. Uh, clearly there's been a, you know, there's a need for some social change as well about do, the role of women. Do you think there are bigots in your party? Um, no, I, generally, I mean, I've been around the country for the last six months and, and the uh, local conservative associations, they, they know the party needs to change and they want to change I and mean, they voted for change by a margin of two to one. I mean, I did not, you know, any of the journalists who came with me um, who watched me speak, not just at the hustings, but actually at the meetings of local parties that I, I had all over the country, they, there was an uncompromising message of change in which women candidates were mentioned pretty much every time. Uh, you know, the things I mentioned in my stump speech were changing the party in terms of women, young people and cities, changing the policies and making sure we spoke about climate change and childcare as well as asylum and crime, and then actually explaining what our principles meant today to make them relevant to people. Those were the three things I said everywhere I went, and people voted for it in a huge number. So I don't think they are. What impact do you think that the party's previous policy on immigration and the language and tone and the, the stress that it put on immigration in previous election campaigns? I mean, 
not just this last one, but 1997 and 2001 as well, had on your ability to reach out to Johnson? I think it's a deeper problem than that. Um, Francis Maud showed a very interesting graph at the party conference where he said if you, if you presented the conservative immigration policy to people, 60% of people approved of it, until you told them it was a conservative policy and that dropped to 30%. Um, <coughs> I think if you actually look at the language, um, I mean language is very important, if you look at the language in the manifesto or the language in the policy documents, it was, it was good and fine and, and um, important and actually stressed the positive benefits of immigration, which I believe passionately that this country benefits from you know, culturally, socially, economically from immigration. Um, but there, there, there was a very deep perception problem and we need to deal with that and I'm going to deal with it. Do you think immigration... That, well, that wasn't triggered by anything you said or did, that you suggested? I think these things go back into the mists of time but the point is I'm not focused on the past I'm focused on the future and I want to make sure that people when they look at the Conservative Party say that party understands Britain today understands me and my family and my aspirations knows what's good for the country in terms of immigration will take the right decisions in terms of recognizing a modern economy will have a big amount of emigration and immigration but also recognizes that a responsible government needs to look at the level of net migration in terms of also providing good public services, having good community relations and making sure that communities can, can, can adapt. And that's really what it's about and that's, that's what the country wants and that's what actually conservatives are good at delivering because I think they've do, listened do to Do you think the level of net... And one last point, yeah, also yeah. I'd say that I mean, in terms of who got it most spectacularly wrong, I would argue that David Blunkett was actually the one, you know, he was the person who talked about us being swamped, he used irresponsible language at the same time as having a chaotic immigration policy. I want the Conservative Party to do the opposite. I want us to use moderate, reasonable, sensible language and to have a policy that actually delivers what the country needs. Do you think the level of net migration at the moment is... Do you think, do you think the level of net migration at the moment is too high? Well, the, the um, problem at the moment is there's been such a high level of, of illegal um, immigration that it's very difficult to answer that question. But if we believe the government's current estimates... Um, then clearly net migration is very high because the level of illegal migration is so high. And one of the things we obviously need to do is, is make sure we have a system where we have a slightly better control. Um, things like em embarkation controls would help us know uh, who of the students and um, tourists who we want to come to this country, we want to have an expanding student population, but who of them have actually left and gone back to their countries. So that will be, it will be more easy to answer that question once we know. And would you still go into the next election with a policy to have a quota on immigration? I think I think what we need to do, look, the point about our policies at the uh, last election is they were designed to deliver okay. um, the, 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 the right principle, which was controlled immigration being the other side of the coin from good community relations, and to allow um, immigration that is good for um, the economy and good for Britain. Um, now, the exact means by which we do that is clearly going to be reviewed. The whole point of having an 18-month policy review yeah. and to look at these things, not in their separate boxes, but to look at them in terms of you know, economic competitiveness being one review and uh, social cohesion and social action being another review. The whole point of that is to get these things right for the long term. So I'm not going to make up policies for by newspaper headlines. But it's you could ditch the quota. You could. I mean, we're reviewing the policies. So it's up for grabs that you could ditch it. You know, all our policies are under review. That's the point of the policy. You know, I want these policy reviews not to think 
oh, we're committed to this, we're committed to that. I want them to think, this is the big challenge facing the country. What are the right ways of meeting them? Coming up with the answers in 18 months, which will provide us with the encyclopedia from which we can then draw the manifesto, which will be... Um, in, in your guiding principle is, is immigration that's good for the, company, for the country economically, and, that's, and it's about the economic health of the country. Then well, that, it's, it's doesn't both, give it's you, both. that doesn't give you a point on asylum. No, well, I think, I think the, 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 the principles that the Conservative Party should apply to the issue of, of immigration are very clear, that we think immigration is good for Britain, we think that um, there's clear economic benefits in a modern economy from having both emigration and immigration, but that net migration needs to have careful regard to uh, good community relations and the fair provision of, of public services. Those are the principles you apply, and then you have to try and come up with the answer. I'd say that the government hasn't got that right at all, because there's been very high levels of illegal immigration, an asylum system that's been uh, groaning under the weight of, of, of applications, and no real um, method of working out what level of immigration is good for Britain. Mm. And in those points, you don't include anything on the side? You don't think that I'm absolutely committed, no, and, and the Conservative Party has always been, and I'm passionately committed to giving people who are fleeing torture and persecution asylum, and that means not just letting them in, but, you know, taking them to our hearts and feeding and clothing and, and schooling them. That's the whole point about genuine asylum. Oh. Oh. Which Conservative Prime Minister do you most admire? Well, obviously, Winston Churchill. I mean, you know, I think the... Yeah. 19- Everybody didn't claim him. Okay, I should have said, I should have said this game excludes Winston Churchill. Well, I mean, except for it is, you know, probably, yeah. you know the yeah. 1940 moment, sure. I think, is, sure. is probably one sure. of the um, proudest moments of our yes. history. Uh, so I admire all sorts of different Conservative Prime Ministers for all sorts of different things. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in the 1980s, and I admired... Um, the changes that Margaret Thatcher made to, to make the economy stronger and to you know give this ch- country a chance of of uh, you know regaining its place as a as a successful modern European economy. And so I admire her for that. Um, I think you know different Conservative prime ministers have brought different different things. What was Margaret Thatcher's worst mistake? Do you think the poll tax? Definitely the poll. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think okay. so. I mean, you do, I mean, local government finance is, as I've discovered, having you know, is just one of the most difficult subjects there is, and you know that turned out. I mean, I remember I was in the Conservative Research Department at the time, and it was just it turned into a complete nightmare because you know, if you read the early documents, the idea of this 150 pound charge, you know, more like a television license fee, people were going to pay, um, and then it turned out at the end at sort of 650 pounds, and it was a it was, so that was I think the worst mistake. Which non-Conservative Prime Minister do you most admire? Um, that is a very good question. I'm not sure I've given this one enough thought. Um, Don't overthink it. No, Sometimes I, your instinctive I, yeah. re- reactions are the best ones. I think, I don't know, Palmerston? Palmston, yeah, okay. Palmston, what do you like about Palmston? He he did in the Conservative Party for a long stretch. Why 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 Palmston? That's well, I think an I think church. a um, you know a stood up for liberal values internationally. It was a strong voice for Britain. Um, I think I mean I admire quite a lot about Gladstone um, in in a similar in a similar way. It was very neocon Palmston, wasn't he? He liked doing a lot of intervention with gunboats. Yes, I mean, Don, 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 Don Pacifico. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure I think yeah. we'll go too far down. 
<laughs> we'll go too far down. Is, is there a sort of thinker, sort of person? Is there somebody you really sort of admire? You know, you know, like reading or reading about or something. But not necessarily right now. But is there something like, I mean, certainly obviously Thatcher and Keith Joseph, mm. Blair and. Thompson. Um, no, there's no one person. I'm very sort of. I like reading people I disagree with. I mean, I've always loved, you know, reading. I love reading. I mean, I think. I remember one of the books that got me interested in politics was Tony Benn's Arguments for Democracy. I think it's just a great book. I mean, I did lots of it I disagree with, but I, I love reading. You know, I think I think some of Enoch Powell's writing about the Constitution is fascinating. I don't agree with all of that, but I've always I like being stimulated by things I disagree with, almost rather than reading something and say yes, that is my sort of creed. Sure. Um, and uh, what am I reading at the moment? Uh, I've I've just finished um, a couple of novels. I'm reading Tom Boyer's book on Gordon Brown. But, um, it's it's um, it's pretty hard work. But mainly, I'm reading whatever. I read that. I've done. I've done that. Um, I'm reading that. Uh, what have I got? I've got some quite good things to read over Christmas, but. Um, Mainly, I've, I've been just reading into the job because they're yeah. just every day. Oh, you know, no, I thought I ought to read the book. Um, but uh, it doesn't look like he's going to be taking over any time soon. So. I find with most politicians there is, is something, if you ask them, that turn them into what they are. I mean, Michael Howard, and he will laugh about it, you yeah. probably talked to him about it, say actually he became a Conservative because of Suez. He was probably the only yes. boy <laughs> at his grammar school in South Wales who actually joined the Conservative <laughs> because of Suez. But did you have a sort of epiphanal moment? No, not really. I mean, I think I... So you just more drifted into being Yeah, I was very much... I, I, the studying economics, and I was very much... I, I was very much a sort of liberal in terms of believing in personal freedom and believing in letting people have more control over their lives. It was that sort of sense that got me interested in politics. And then it always seemed to me the big growing up and looking at politics in the 1980s, it, it, that what seemed to me to be the big battle. That even though you didn't have to agree with everything Margaret Thatcher was doing, the battle was over. Do we want a more state-controlled economy, a more unionised economy, um, a less free country, or do you want the opposite of that? Yeah. And that was sort of... What do you say to those who say, actually, you becoming leader and potentially prime minister is the final triumph of the apparent cheek? You were a political advisor to two cabinet ministers. You were then a, a, I mean, you'll slightly quarrel with my characterisation of it, but you were a, a senior spin doctor for a media company. That basically, if you became, you'll be the first man who went from spinmeister yeah, to read, prime um, minister. I read this in, in Danny Finkelstein's column. Um, I, I do disagree a bit with the Carlton thing, because I was yeah. in the end. I was on the management committee of the company and I was in charge of all our investor relations and city relations and presented the company to our investors so I mean it was and dealt with analysts and shareholders and that. so it's quite different different to being it's not exactly you know um, uh, spin doctor um, so I've forgotten the question now. well it's the the question, you are the you're the triumph those well, who say this you're the triumph of the most meretricious aspect of politics which is the spin master I, I just I, I'm not I just don't really focus on no these offense. things I just think no offence Steve <laughs> I, I mean I think there's no ideal preparation for politics but, but you know some time in business some time in in, in Whitehall, understanding how government works, it's not a bad preparation. I think what matters is if you've got the right ideas. Do you know, understand what the country? Because you get Alistair Campbell saying, actually, what the Conservative Party has done is not elect its Tony Blair; it's elected its Alistair Campbell, but it's made Alistair and, and then Campbell in that leader. Wonderful 
article and he said, yeah. just because I say something doesn't mean it isn't true. Yeah. And I thought, when you've got to write that, oh boy, are you in trouble. <laughs> Look, I wear it as a badge of honour. I've now got the, you know, Alistair Campbell, the tack dog, oak leaf cluster with two gold bars. This is, this is great, you know. He seems to be the only person who's been unleashed, who's allowed to attack me. You know? Why do you guess? It's interesting. Why is that? I have no idea. This is a great... I think I would have stayed in um, in the television business, um, the media business more broadly. Mm. You know, Carlton owned Technicolor and video cassettes and DVDs and technology businesses, and I I did enjoy it, and I was learning a lot about business, and I was getting more involved in the running of the company and the strategic decisions that we made. And I think I would have done that, and I hope I would have combined it with um, other interests in, in life. Um, but I wouldn't have been happy because I wouldn't have been totally happy because I, you know, to me it was just never as interesting as politics, the issues, the people, the opportunity to change things. So that was a very strong drive back. And when I was offered the job at Carlton, it was my sort of first argument with Michael Green. He said, "Right, here's the job, and you can't fight the next election." And I said, "No, well, that's not the job. I want to fight the next election." So. Took an instant pay cut, um, yes. but so I, I wouldn't have been as happy as as um, doing. But you would too have wanted to run something that would always have been. Um, you like hands-on running things. I like yes, but I was working in a very big business, so it would have been it would have been a different career, and I don't know where it would have ended up. I've never I'm not someone who sort of plots my career on the back mm -hmm. of an envelope. I didn't think yeah. go to Carlton if not politics, go run media business, go run. I just don't think like that. I didn't go into politics. No, no one believes this, but I'll say it anyway. I didn't think, you know, step one, From college, I'll be doing shadow cabinet, step two, leader of party. I just don't think like that. And, and you know, after the last election, my initial thoughts were that I wouldn't go for the leadership, and I thought I will um, knuckle down and just um, get on with it. Again, no epiphanal moment, just a sort of steady thinking that I knew what needed to change in the Conservative Party and what the big challenges were facing the country, and... I didn't, you know, I thought the best way of making those changes to the Conservative Party was to get on and run it. Um, and I, it was never a positioning exercise. I mean, I always, I mean, you might laugh, but I always thought there was a very good prospect of winning. Um, and uh, there were moments when the prospect looked slightly less good. Um, That's uh, summer when it was all going slightly pear-shaped, and the others seemed to be having a pulse, and people were saying, oh, you know, is Cameron going to fold and go Yeah, no, I was never going to fold. Well, obviously, you know, it was less encouraging waking up and reading the papers every morning, but I didn't, I, I never seriously thought about folding, um, because I always thought it was a good prospect, and it was a very long race. I mean, it's like sort of two mm. marathons strapped together, mm. you know. Um, but obviously, the way it all turned out, I didn't quite expect the, the, the launch of the conference and the way that all went. It was quite an extraordinary couple of weeks. When somebody like your old friend Norman Lamont says your views are not fully formed on everything, do you think that's a fair, fair comment? Well, I'm not a deeply ideological person. I'm a practical person and, um, and pragmatic, and I think that's a good thing in politics. I have very clear values and principles and very clear things I want to achieve. Um, but uh, I am pragmatic, and if you t to take an example, the issue of the women candidates, I know what I want, which is I want the Conservative Party to have a better balance, not because of political correctness, but because it would improve our policies. It would improve the way we work. You know, if you put 
ten people around the table and ask them to talk about pensions, and they're all men, they come up with different answers. But I, it doesn't mean I have some ideological fixation to it must be done this way or that way. So I've set out a kind of, right, here's an A-list, this is a practical step. If that doesn't work, we'll look at something else. That's the sort of person I am, is I know where I want to get to, but I'm not sort of ideologically attached to one particular method. So in the way there was Thatcherism, <coughs> there will never be Cameronism. It's hard to say, actually, but... You know. Yeah, well, that's a, good, that's a good reason for not having it. <laughs> I think that the, the leaders in search of, of isms is never a good um, thing, and uh, the best thing to do in politics is to get on and do what you want to do and let others make up their mind whether that's a ism or a wasm. <laughs> or an isn't. <laughs> the great... I hear that Ology is having his totally different... It's totally different... <coughs> Sort of still one of Blair's great strengths was sort of get the low party not being particularly ideological in a way. Oh. And a slightly sort of. So the old headbangers who you'd always associated with the Labour Party sort of had to shut up in order to get in power. I think it was them who'd uh, kept them uh, out of office for so long. Do you feel it's sort of the same in your own party that there's a kind of. Um, Headbanging faction. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wouldn't put it like that. But I think um, that there's a danger for all parties of of appearing too ideological. And and people want to know that you're in politics to do the right thing rather than the ideological thing. And that's that's very important. I mean, take take the example of of the economy and and, and business and open markets and, and all of that. You know, I mean, I think. There's been a danger in the past, and the Conservative Party's been seen too much as just whatever big business wants. And I mean, I didn't go into politics to be the mouthpiece for big business. I went into politics to, in terms of the economy to make sure we've got a strong economy, to open up markets, to give people greater choices and opportunities. Sometimes that means agreeing with business about a particular piece of regulation or a particular bit of taxation, but sometimes it's going to be saying to business, you know, quite determinedly. There's a very important environmental agenda that we need to have delivered. There's a very important social agenda that we need to have delivered. And business, I think, has got a huge role to play in it. And I, I is what, you know, I'm going to the board meeting of business in the community, and I'm, I'm very interested in, in the, when it comes back to the whole social action agenda, is how you get business involved in dealing with some of the biggest social problems we have in this country, um, I think is a really exciting agenda for them as well as um, for, for politicians. Um, and uh, well, both. I think you know, there's a very big not-for-profit sector in this country. A lot of um, enterprises like that. There's also a sort of social enterprise sector, which is they plough most of the profits back into the business, but they're not sort of the classic not-for-profit. But I, I think let a thousand flowers bloom. There are lots of different. We, we talk about you know the liberal agenda because you call yourself <coughs> a liberal conservative. Would you vote to make fox hunting legal again? Um, personally, yes, I would. You would? Yes. Have you, it's been written that you've been hunting. Have you been hunting? I have. Um, How many times? I don't know. Probably ten times. I mean, I used to ride when I was little, and I was brought up in the countryside. Um, and uh, I started riding again about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, on a holiday in, um, in Africa, and enjoyed it. And my, the constituency I represent is packed full of, um, now, for other frustrated fox hunters. Yeah. Um, well, you've loved it and all, all that stuff. No, none of stupid things. Yeah. Happen, no. yeah. um, I think um, it's a, to me, it's just an issue of freedom. It's just this is something that has gone on in the country for yeah. countryside for years, and um, I think it's just an area where the criminal it was it was wrong for the criminal law to go, um, and I think that's almost been proved now 
because we've got a shambolic situation where it's a very difficult to know whether hunting's continuing or not, but no one yeah. seems to be happy. Yeah. Uh, no, that's so it's an area where, yeah, I, mean, I think actually you just look at the evidence, be practical and not ideological. Was this law a sensible law? No, <laughs> it's been shambolic. No. From a practical <laughs> point of view of your party, though, my point, my what my sort of message is, do you send to the country about your new modern 21st century Conservative Party that actually would want to make fox hunting. Well, I don't Does believe in the right in, message. Well, I don't believe in persecuting minorities. Um, and uh, I had a very interesting meeting recently at the Whitney Abattoir with the um, chief Shokhtar uh, about um, Shakita slaughter of animals. Um, and his arguments seemed to me to be rather similar. Um, I'm sorry, I'm diverging. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, I think the policy at the last election of, of saying let's, uh, you know, after another election have a free vote in the House of Commons is a very sensible yeah. approach. But the law is clearly a complete mess. And actually it's, it's, da- it's degraded Parliament and the law. The way it's Smoking, would you, would you vote for um, the government ban or would you go further? I, I as someone... Wanting to, well, they're, they're, they're not going so well so well, far. Well, in your own yard, it's still <laughs> legal. Yes, just it? legal, just. But, no, I mean, personally, I don't believe in banning things uh, where possible, so I wouldn't vote for, I, I, would, I would hope that we can get to a situation where all pubs and bars and have, have smoke-free areas, and actually I think bars, the bar area should be smoke-free because of the staff. So you'd have smoking and non-smoking. Um, but I, so I don't agree. I think the government's ban is actually probably the worst of all worlds. I was up in the northeast recently, and the public... The director of public health said that in some towns, like uh, I think he mentioned Easing, Easington, it was Easington. He said that on a survey, eighty percent of the pubs in Easington were going to give up food and go to all smoking. So it could actually, the government's ban could make the situation worse. Uh, but I wouldn't vote for a total ban because I just think it's too intrusive. Why are you still smoking yourself? Your first broken promise. Uh, that's very unfair. No, I'm giving up on... on uh, I'm going to give up in the new year. And, uh, on New Year's just, Day? Well, I'm going to, yes. Um, it it, it uh, was just too difficult to um, try and do too time many time things time. at once. No, not too bad, actually. I've, I gave up for seven months this year. I don't know why I... Why did you start? Why did you restart? I think it was... Was it a bad moment? No, it was... I think I was on holiday, and I... Someone had some cigarettes on the table, and I picked one up and smoked. I sort of forgot that I'd given up. Is that they right? They were his, probably. Were they? I think they were yours. He's a bad influence. Yeah, is he going to give up with you? Yes, he's giving up too. He'll have to. <coughs> Does Samantha <coughs> leaning on you? To a little up? bit, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, so it will be done. Eventually. He has had a hell of a lot of public attention, and in some ways, most of the attention on the campaign, and now you're really doing if you ever get to number 10, double and triple and quadruple. Do you worry about how it's going to be like bringing up the kids in that kind of limelight? Yes, I do. I think it's it's very... um, It is difficult. I think you have to try and find a balance um, between your work and your family life, and I think you also have to try and find a balance between the public's quite understandable desire to know a bit about Mm. you and actually your own desire for them to know a bit about you Mm. and where the correct boundaries are drawn and I I, I probably get it wrong a lot of the time and hope that I get it right a lot of the time but I I just don't you know you're only you're just going to know that as you go along it's something about Samantha and I talk about and and we'll just try and get it right it's very difficult but I think people do have a people want to know a bit about you and I think they're entitled to and I think you 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 want them to know a bit about you to see that you know you've you've got Normal, if you look at the lives of, of uh, the children of leading politicians, mm. especially those who become prime minister, they're nearly always unhappy. I mean, does that worry you about your own? 
children. I mean, Car- yeah, it, it, exactly. I mean, whether it's Carol Thatcher or Reagan's children or whatever, I mean, it's just such a well, you, such uh, an awful uh, life for them. That's a very depressing thought. Um, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to burden uh, you with that. I just think you, there must be a way of, of being a good politician and a good parent. Um, you know, so far, I've managed to get home. You know, I put Nancy to bed last night and read her Mog the Cat for the third night running, I think. I could almost recite Mog the Cat off by heart. <laughs> very boring it is, too. Um, I think she can recite most of Mog the Cat, which is even more impressive. She now knows. The punchline, bother that cat, she actually <laughs> chants out with monotonous regularity. Um, so I think there is a way of doing it, and I've just got to try and you know, be very careful to keep a, a good balance and make sure I'm there and try and make sure that while people are entitled to have a good look at your life, that there's, there's privacy too. Yes, I think um, I thought I'd take a week is the current plan. Just um, I think that, that immediate period where you do need sort of help. Um, and then I thought I might try and take another bit, sort of three or four months later, when actually that's the sort of key moment, is, is the baby sleeping through the night and mum's tired and, you know. So that, that is the plan. Um, and it will give everyone the treat of William Hague at Primus' questions, which is an added bonus for... Uh, oh, he's going to do it, is he? He is the senior yeah. member of the Shadow Cabinet, so if I'm not around, that'll be... Oh. But no, that's why my yeah. plan is to do it. But you never know. I mean, the babies can turn up early or... Early they could. They could turn up. I said, God, he was good, actually, you know. <laughs> Um, no, it'd be great. Well, I want to show the wealth of talent we've got on our benches. I mean, that's what's great about it. You say that, though. We're a lot of people. So actually, it's quite oh, amusing. Yeah, I went up to, um, where was I the other day? I was in Yorkshire. And someone said, oh, you need more Yorkshire. And I said, look, every morning I have a meeting and David Davis is sitting here and William Higgs sitting there. I'm surrounded by Yorkshiremen. What do you want? You know, I said, we need some Yorkshire women. That's the point. Um, but um, where was I? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that's what I'm trying to do. But the baby might turn up early and all sorts of things might happen. But that's the sort of current. People look to that shadow cabinet and they sit. It's not actually that much different to Michael Howard's Shadow Cabinet, and you've still got uh, you know, more Davids than there are women. Well, I didn't want to discriminate you, against this? people on the basis they're called David. I think that would be, a, you know, we could have a culling of the Davids, yeah. you know, this is very biblical. Um, I, I don't agree. I think it was a very good, what I wanted to do was several things to, to unite the party, uh, and I think having, you know, William coming back and having um, David Davis in a key job and Liam um, doing defence. Uh, and David Willits, I think, doing a very important job in education. I think it's a, you know, definitely unites the party. I think it's brought on some new talent. I think Philip Hammond, you know, very bright. Having Hugo Swire in the Shadow Cabinet, Teresa Villas. There are, you know, double the number of women. Yes, far too few, but that's an, inc- you know, from two to four but, is an increase. Okay. Um, and if you look at the below the ranks of the Shadow Cabinet, I think I've signalled some quite important policy thrusts, you know, Paul Goodman who's yeah. very yeah. bright doing childcare in the Treasury team, you know, where the decisions are taken uh, Nick Herbert head of reform with the specific responsibility of looking at police reform and getting that right, um, getting Peter Ainsworth who's very respected on the environment, having done the Environmental Audit Committee uh, to, to do the DEFRA job with Greg Barker under him, I think I've given some clear signals about where the party's going in terms of policy uh, and um, yeah. that's good. But there's a reading of you, Shadow Cabinet trying to accommodate everybody, uh, all important policy kicked out to commission, so you don't really have to have any policy if you don't want to. So it says, actually, you're <coughs> very, very cautious, really. Well, your defining bit of your temperament is caution. I, I, 
I'm, I'm a very reasonable, moderate, practical person, that's true, but I have a very clear idea about where I want to go, and I think if you look at, you know, the, look at the women candidates issue, an A-list is a step that many people in the party don't want, and I've taken it, and that's what's going to happen. Um, people on the issue of is there enough policy, if you look at the speech I made on the economy about uh, a new way of judging fiscal rules, a new triple lock in terms of stability, that is clear substance. So I, I, the thing well, that was I, a pre-election policy of Elder Vallette. Well, it's been, been added yeah. to. Um, I think the point is that you, what I'm discovering about politics is you just you set out, you make up your mind, you do things, you announce things, and people will then put whatever complexion they want on it, but you've got to just know where you want to go and get on with it. And other people will make of it what they want. Yeah, 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 we push okay, yes, yeah, yeah, it's a long. One final question, yeah. which is um, about what I've said all along about this is that um, I think the classification needs to fit with the science and with the evidence. Mm -hmm. And if the government is bringing forward new science and new evidence, um, we'll be interested to look at it. But it's a decision for the shadow cabinet, and, and they will, we will discuss it and come to the right conclusion. So well, I think it, you know, odd not to um, uh, look at evidence before making a decision. Because I seem to remember before the election you saying that you wouldn't support the classification in line with the Well, I've always said that when I, well, when I was on the select committee, we came to a particular view based on the evidence. And, and the thing that always motivated me was the idea that the classification must make sense to young people. Um, and I think there's a longer-term piece of work that needs to be done about how we can have a set of classifications that meets with science, um, but also makes sense to, uh, and at the same time, makes sense to young people. It doesn't send negative signals. What was the last movie you saw? Did you get any time? Um, I watched um, I watched The Untouchables on the telly again the other night, which it's I great, uh, it is great. That scene in the station is yeah, fantastic yeah, with the pram and all that. <laughs> the last thing I saw at the cinema was Broken Flowers, which was just appalling. I mean, it was, I mean, it was so boring. God, I, went, I slept the whole way through, and I don't think I missed a thing. Um, Which is uh, that? Which is that? Bill Murray movie. It's a sort of road movie, but it is a road movie. I've been going to see his old girlfriends. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so tiresome. Yeah. Um, sort of Jenny Undertaker by the Daily Mail in your case. Yes, yes, they've done it. Well, I find it more interesting. Um, <laughs> you saw sort of the Daily Mail. I do think that was... I mean, they're now fantastic... But it was a big that whole thing which Andrew started. Thank you very much. Um, oh, should we just wrap that up? No, 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 no,